Welcome to Intersection. This is a new video series that Provoke Media has launched in partnership with Praytel. I'm Arthi Shaw. I'm executive editor for Provoke Media and host for this series. Um, so Intersection is a video and podcast series in which we invite guests to have sort of an open conversation about the ways that creativity, media, technology, democracy um, intersect with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion to ultimately transform behaviors and norms. Um, this is the second video in the series. Part one featured um, an author and University of Texas professor, S. Craig Watkins, who talked about the ways that creatives of color use technology and social media to build sort of a new innovation economy, to build social capital, and to ultimately disrupt sectors. Um, we'll link. We'll link. Um, uh, we'll link to that conversation in the show notes because it was a fantastic uh, discussion. If, if if you haven't seen that one already, but today we have with us um, Rebecca Lowell Edwards who is the Chief Communications Officer at the ACLU, um, the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, we're so excited to have her with us, um, especially right now, we're amid this chaotic and challenging election cycle. Um, we also have with us Praytel's CEO, Andy Prey, who is sort of a longtime colleague um, or former colleague of Rebecca's, and he'll be joining the conversation as well. So welcome to the show, Andy and Rebecca. Thank you. So, Becky, you, so I, I, just for our listeners, I think you, you professionally go right by Rebecca, but conversationally go by Becky. So that will explain the, the, the sort of the, the changing names. Um, so you have been at the ACLU since, since June, right? Yes, almost, well, three and a half months now. Three and a half months. So, I mean, this, uh, so it's, it's a lot. What a three, three and a half months, months to, yes. <laughs> to have. <laughs> yes. So I mean, just, but my first question just that, just that I want, I'm so curious about is like, how have you triaged in these first three months? Like, how have you decided and prioritized um, what to focus on? Well, I mean, as any new colleague, I have to focus on getting to know people. So I am super lucky to have been able to prioritize that because the team that I've joined is so high performing. I mean, on a daily basis, they are dealing, the ACLU is a multi-issue organization. So we are dealing with everything from voting rights to preserving disability rights to, you know, keeping the pressure on the Trump administration in terms of immigration. So, you know, I'm very lucky because I've, I'm onboarding during a time when I've never been to the office. Mm. I've never met my colleagues in person and there are emerging intense communication needs daily. Yeah. So I'm able to focus on getting to know the issues, getting to know my colleagues, and that the team that I'm working with is outstanding. So, so you know, maybe let, let's step back a little bit. Um, you know, to your point, I mean, this is such a huge job right now. There's there's so many issues that, that sort of need that, this kind of support and attention. Um, so I'm curious what drew you um, to, to, to the ACLU right now, because you were previously head of communications at Snyder Electric, right? And before that you were at GE. So this is definitely sort of a new, a new area. Yeah, you know, I feel pretty lucky. Um, Andy knew me earlier in my career and has promised not to divulge any of my terrible blind spots or mishaps um, during this interview. But, you know, for most of my career, I've been dealing with for-profit entities. Um, this was a deliberate, moment, I was reflecting on kind of how, what I wanted to do with my skills. So I've been lucky enough to deal um, with myriad issues, um, intense to less intense, working in energy, um, 
with GE, working for the International Olympic Committee. So scale and um, significance were not lacking in my life professionally. But I really was reflecting on what was going to make me feel fulfilled. And I realized when my family moved back to the US about a year ago, that I really wanted to be a part of improving um, this less than perfect union. And the ACLU seemed like a great place to, to do that work. Mm -hmm. So was there, I mean, was there an issue in particular that, that, that was really like hugely important or that you think is, or, or is it sort of everything? So when we returned to the U.S. about a year ago, I started thinking about how I could marry my personal conviction and what's important to me as a mom um, with my professional capacity. And so I figured that there was a place where I could go to work every day that was having an impact on society, but also an impact that I personally could appreciate. And in fact, the ACLU was that place. So I had made a decision professionally that uh, there probably wasn't going to be much more for me to do in a corporate setting. I, I felt like the scale and opportunity at GE and the International Olympic Committee would be hard to replicate. Um, but I did feel like there was work I could do that would have more of a social impact. And so the ACLU um, was a great fit. You know, so this this might be kind of a, a good time to talk a little bit about you know race and in in the PR industry in particular. I mean, it seems like the industry is, is struggling. It seems like there's like a twofold battle here. I mean, one is the industry itself building more inclusive teams, um, agencies. I know at least in in June, um, many of them very publicly prioritized um, diversity and, and being more transparent um, around those numbers so that they're held accountable. Um, obviously, in-house teams as well. And then there's also this bigger issue of like dismantling systemic racism, right? I mean, that, that the industry did sort of make this pledge to, to help fight, right? I mean, so outside of their own DEI initiatives, you know, what can they do on a, on a more societal level? And I'm curious, you know, and from your vantage, both, you know, as an individual, but also from, from the ACLU, what, why has the industry struggled so much around this? And what realistically can and should the industry be doing for both of these things? both their own internal numbers, but also what role they can, they can have in, in society. Oh my gosh, RT, that is such a big question. And it's so, it's so funny because I struggle to answer it, not because I haven't reflected upon this a ton, but because you can't separate sort of individual agency or kind of individual paths of opportunity for professionals who want professionals of color like me who want to pursue um, a path in uh, communications or PR but don't see people who look like us in powerful positions so it can be quite disheartening I mean what motivates people to pursue any path but role models and if there aren't a lot of role models it can be pretty sad, you know? Um, I've spoken at BU where there are such talented students and they look like you want your office to look. Mm -hmm. So what's stopping them from pursuing roles in-house or at agencies? Probably not seeing people who look like them in the interview process. Um, you can't separate that though from the systemic power issues at most organizations that have just limited 
the representation of people of color or women or choose your uh, marginalized group insert here um, that has to be shaken up that has to be shaked at its core i mean shook at its core sorry i i think that boards have to look at themselves and say you know it's time for some of us to step aside and make room for diversity. Um, I think leadership teams have to look at themselves and say, it's time for us to make room for decision makers who look like the communities we want to attract or the communities that we serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and do you think that, that there is a way that the, that the private sector outside of you know building out their own numbers and making sure that you know that internally they they're they're promoting um you know people of color into the leadership ranks um having their boards diversify is there anything else that the private sector you feel like can do around this issue um in this moment i think there's a ton the private sector can do so the way i think about it is sort of what are our spheres of influence so um, where are the big drivers in, in the private sector? Supply chain. You know, what decisions does a company make about who it awards contracts to or what the standards are of employment for those middle or um, small organizations that are in the supply chain? The amount of spending in supply chain would dwarf any organization's charitable giving or CSR efforts. And so I would say that is a great place to start and look at that system with integrity of values, not just maybe what the drivers have been in the past. Um, I think another area to look at is sort of in, I can understand companies that don't want to be partisan, but there are values related to democracy that are good for business, <laughs> you know, like hiring practices, um, making sure that when the Supreme Court makes a decision, like you can't discriminate against transgender employees, that you do everything in your organization to root out that bias, whether it's on the books in your policies or it's in practice by the people who have power. You, you, there cannot be, you need to be unflinching about that. Um, and then I also think um, just talking about it, I mean, I don't, I think the first time I uttered the phrase white supremacy was when I came to work for the ACLU. Wow. And I am a person of color. Wow. We need to come to terms with this vocabulary and make it acceptable to have very difficult conversations. The, I mean, yes, there's, there's so much that, that you, you said there. And a couple of follow-up questions. Um, one would be actually, Andy, for you, you know, because you are a mem member of the supply chain for, for a lot of companies. Are you getting questions now, especially in, in the wake of June, around what, what DE&I looks like, um, you know, diversity for your teams? I know that, that one of the companies that did this very publicly, it was in 2016, was HP. HP started um, re requiring that their marketing vendors, I think it was actually all of their external vendors, but we, we focused on marketing, um, report um, the DEI of, of their teams, and they were scored, and they were, and this was published. So that that was the accountability sort of metric, and you know, and that was a huge. I mean, at the time, I mean, it was it was unprecedented. We had never seen anything like that. Andy, are you seeing? Are your clients asking more questions around? You know, what your what diversity looks like at Praise Health? Yeah. Well, hey, this also hi Becky. I haven't seen Becky in like a dozen years, and. <laughs> 
all every young person at age used to be so lucky to have a, a, a beacon of hope like Becky when you're like, oh, this is a safe space of a person who gets it. And so um, great to see you again. I picture you at the ACLU like this sort of West Wing Aaron Sorkin dialogue place right now. And I'm just like, I'm just picturing like walking and talking all through and like solving problems. And I'm, I'm, I'm jealous and, and a huge admiration. So um, Arthi, that's a great question. I think the biggest thing that worries me um, from the agency side is release our numbers and move on or from um, the brand side, frankly, let's prioritize the numbers on an agency side, but then not do the work internally, right? Because maybe we can, we're gonna move slow here, but we'll, we'll have the agencies. As both people have to rise together. But um, I think I've been very surprised. I was nervous. June, we saw this peak um, in July, and then started to dissipate in August, but the wave of RFPs from the past few weeks has moved uh, DE&I questions from the 15th question of 15 to the second. Huh. Um, it's, it's, it's palpable. I've seen it in probably three, four uh, from across different sectors of the newest wave of, and I think what that means is it took them a month or two to get it in, right? Mm -hmm. To figure out the questions they were gonna ask. And you know, brands move slowly, they're bureaucracies by nature, that makes sense. But um, I think there's good news there. I think an agency's if it's the 15th one, you feel okay about nailing the first 14 and maybe the 15th isn't your strength. But when it's the second question, you better believe that agencies are going to invest in that. So I think, um, I think there's hope for that, that push um, from, from our brands and our, our clients. Yeah, and RT, if I could just piggyback on that. One thing I have seen that's a great um, opportunity for agencies, specifically just this week, I had an agency that I was working with come back to me with the creative work that they were presenting. And their first page of their presentation was sort of the gaps that they have because of the composition of their huh. team. Wow. And they acknowledged those gaps and they said, okay, so here's our recommendation. After we give you our creative recommendations that you fill those blind spots by talking to this community, that community, and this third community. And I thought, good on you. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say the other example I would offer is the Unstereotype Alliance, which was, I think, founded by Melinda Gates and um, PNG in partnership with UN uh, Women a couple of years ago. It was specifically tailored for uh, gender balance or gender representation in advertising. But I think it's a good model for PR. You know, how so one, one thing that's come up in a few conversations that that i've had with folks that which is sort of disheartening which is different than the june conversations is managing this inevitable backlash that happens whenever you know like to your point about you know this the first time that you said white supremacy in a work environment was in june right for a lot of organizations this is so new and there is this inevitable backlash around you know i've had agency had say things to me like well we don't want to look like we're favoriting a particular group and then you know we'll talk about diversity in the in hiring and they'll back they'll backpedal and say but we want to make sure we have the best person not really aware of their own biases in their in their recruitment processes right like they've, they've probably never had the best person like that's such a subjective term anyway um how can you know now that we're after we're, we're done with the initial sort of awakening how can we sustain this and 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 also manage any sort of backlash that that, that sort of arises I'm not sure, but I, I keep, you know, it's funny because I'm uh, on the board of the Page Society and I've actually volunteered, I didn't volunteer, I was voluntold um, that I would be chairing the uh, annual conference this year. And I said, fine, I'll do it if we can commit the entire agenda to the business of humanity. 
And so I think one of the opportunities for making sure that people don't mistake being awoke or awakened with being woke mm -hmm. is for people in any sort of position of influence to use all of their discretionary effort to persist in keeping this conversation alive. Mm -hmm. So I think about just a simple thing like you, you know, I never use the term white supremacy. Does that mean I haven't felt it? Not at all, because, you know, I used to straighten my hair when I was climbing the ranks in the corporate world. And why did I do that? Some probably some subconscious feeling like I needed to assimilate to white norms. So I think the more I can share my story to help people relate to how this emerges and how this manifests in digestible bites, the better we will be at combating the issues by kind of uprooting the um, places where it exists. Mm -hmm. So it, it feels strange to, to move on from this topic because it, it is so big um, and there's a lot more that needs to be said, but I, I, but I do wanna talk a little bit about this upcoming election. Um, um, there's, there's obviously a lot of concern about suppression, um, people's ability to, to, to practice their right to vote. Um, what can, is there anything that the, A, the, the industry, the PR industry can do to help to ensure that their employees have a voice this election? Um, and is there anything individuals can do um, right now? Um, yes. So I think right now, so we're looking at it in a couple of phases. Like right now we're in the preserving the vote casting phase, right? So we're trying to help people understand what their options are so they can be um, cautious about their health and also um, conscious of sort of what the requirements are in their jurisdiction. So if you need certain registration to mail, mail in your ballot or receive a mail-in ballot, um, if you know the best option for you is in person, but there's um, a new a new polling place nearby, maybe one of these NBA teams who's donating their their stadiums, you know. So I think we're in the casting phase right now, and it's important that companies do whatever they can to help their um, employees and their communities, frankly, get the most accurate information because there's a lot of disinformation out there. So um, the companies that we're in partnership with often just come to us for trusted resources. Like we have a let the people vote um, site and it goes state by state and kind of gives people the information they need to make a voting plan and um, to be aware of the races that are important in their, in their region. Um, I think the next phase will be the counting phase. And it will look different than previous election cycles where we all wait by the TV for that, you know, proclamation mm -hmm. of who the winners are on our trusted local broadcast network. Um, it will be different because the timing is different. You know, there will be more, there are different rules. I mean, when is the last time you saw a secretary of any state on television, right? We're all learning about what the rules are for counting mail-in ballots. So the time horizon of when we're gonna know decisions is going to be different. And so companies, I think, can do a good job of kind of getting that information to their employees. There's nothing wrong with sharing that type of information. It's not partisan and 
people benefit from having a thriving democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of initiatives for companies to, you know, give, give the day off. Um, or, you know, I, I think it was at Old Navy most recently that's like um, paying people to, to be poll workers. Um, what are your thoughts on some of these private sector initiatives? I love them. I mean, I think every company has to make a decision of what works for them. But I think, um, you know, you and I have spoken about the fact that if if I was a new a new in my career employee and I was trying to weigh um, the option of waiting in line for hours at my local polling place or making it to the meeting with my boss, I would probably feel a little bit of fear factor for staying in line and any company who takes that um, worry or that obstacle out of the equation, I think is fantastic. The poll working is a little bit difficult for me because you know, at the ACLU, we've been so concentrated on people um, preserving their health in this time that I, I don't feel like I can make a decision for promoting in-person poll working for everyone because everyone has to know what their health, um, health needs are and the, the health measures or the safety measures vary by whole place. So, you know, it's just important to be informed at a local level. I will say, however, that I did encourage my 19 year old to apply to be a poll worker <laughs> because I really wanted to, I wanted the stickiness of what it meant to participate in a democracy. To, this is her first time voting. So, you know, we've walked her through the process. She's amazing. Um, she even convinced me to vote in a different way in our local primaries. So she is fully informed. Um, but I think the next step of acting to help others to exercise their voting rights is an amazing experience for her. So I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, I think, oh, oh Andy, go ahead. I was just gonna build on things that's really inspiring. We were talking about this earlier. I actually asked our HR team, I said, we, do we, can we take a no meetings day? And they said, Andy, we have the whole day off. And I was excited by that, that we already were, were doing that. But then I thought that's going to take a commitment from clients too, right? And I think, you know, we work in a, in a, in a uh, service business. And so obviously we're going to have to be on, right, in case something happens. But um, we're going to need empathy. And I hope that our clients are taking it off. Um, and, uh, you know, it can't just be the agencies. I think it has to be on the brand side too. Uh, and I'm, I, it makes me think of, unfortunately, last year, the day after the election was um, one of the toughest days uh, as a leader uh, at agency. I, our, our, our teams were, were gutted. And it's interesting to think about it this year. We might need a day off, unfortunately, the day after. Um, because, you know, this is a really loaded, scary time for many people. And, you know, I think I learned last year, I made some mistakes in terms of what levers do you press when you kind of do need a hundred people to go to work, but a hundred people did not want to work. And no. I frankly think they shouldn't have, have, have had to um, on that day. And so I think, I hope agency leaders are thinking not only about the, the polling day, but the day after for many people, it's going to be a really fraught day, perhaps, I hope not, but I, I hate to plan that for that, but I, it's, it's not only the polling day, but it's the day after. I learned that last year. The day after is a very, very delicate day. It needs to be treated with sensitivity. You know? And I think, Becky, you raised a really good point about the fact that the day after may not look like what we're expecting, right? In the sense yeah. that we may not know. I do remember in 2016, the day after, we had like three or four meetings scheduled. They were all canceled. 
every single agency CEO that we had a meeting with said, I, I have to deal with internal stuff. Like when this was unexpected, we have people crying in the hallway, like we, we, we need to just, and so, you know, productivity was shot. And I do think that, you know, Becky, to your point, if, if we don't know, I mean, we have, because business leaders are planning out the rest of that week, they should keep in mind that we, that we might be in a really weird, people may not be able to get their eyes off of the TV, right? I mean, people may just be waiting for information. Um, yeah, I think we, we just don't know what it, what it will look like. It's true. And maybe this is a place where um, employee wellness options could come into play because there's the one piece, which Andy, I think it's great that you mentioned, you know, being conscious of the fact that you're, colleagues may need time, but we are in a highly stressful environment right now. Like we are facing racial pandemic, COVID pandemic. You add questionable election integrity to that mix and that is a lot of stress. So I think a lot of companies have access to great mental health resources and maybe being more outspoken and forthcoming about encouraging employees to make use of these resources is another opportunity for them. Yes, and, and when you mentioned everything, I, I have to point out the fact that it is um, almost noon in California, and I don't know if you can see out my window, um, the sun never came out today. So on to top of everything else, um, the West Coast is on fire right now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I think wellness is, is something that I think a lot of employers are struggling with, right? I mean, initially, when COVID first hit, you know, there was a sense of, okay, everybody do what you need, take care of yourself. And now I think a lot of employers are trying to find this balance between employee wellness, but also maintaining a certain level of, of productivity. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I feel like that needs to be a, a, its, own, its own episode one of these days. Yeah. It's a good point. But I'm encouraged by the fact that people are at least having the conversation openly, right? I mean, I could probably count on the on one hand the amount of references to empathy in the first half of my career. Um, at least now people acknowledge emotions and you know the fact that we need to be there for one another to relate to one another as humans um, in order to be productive. Like it's the first hurdle. And I, I know we need to we need to wrap up soon, but I, I do want to you, you mentioned disinformation and I do want to touch on that because I think that is something that is so disheartening and it's sort of why um, you know we kind of I think find ourselves in the situation that we're in is there just seems to be these different realities that people are operating in. Um, and you know, and and because you know, uh, having a, a trusted media is so important for even the PR industry. I'm curious to hear your, your take on A, I mean, what can we do as a society about around disinformation and B, like, is there anything specific that the PR industry should be thinking about or doing around disinformation? Invest in trusted media outlets. Um, I'm married to a journalist, so full disclosure, like, uh, and I'm on the Night Badget board, so I'm a big believer in, in good journalism. I would also say um, this is a place where the ACLU and other nonpartisan organizations can be helpful and you know, use us, turn to us for clarity on issues, um, turn to us for analysis on, um, on what's emerging in the news that you don't know how to make sense of because we can be a source for leaders to use as talking points, you know, for people to pass on to their social networking community. Um, but I think first and foremost, uh, 
I worry sometimes when I hear PR professionals kind of siding with people who don't understand the difference between true journalism and some person who hung a shingle up and started their own blog and portrays themselves mm -hmm. as, you know, a reporter. Um, PR professionals know who the trusted sources are and they know what the standards are for good journalism. So being an advocate and an outspoken ambassador for the difference between that and frankly, sometimes the trash that gets portrayed and picked up as me and use data, use yeah. the analytics that are at most PR professionals fingertips to say, look, this is what happens when a conversation emerges from a trusted source. And this is how it flows. And this is the conversation we want to be in. This is when you have rhetoric that is inflammatory and talking in an echo chamber and potentially not even worth engaging with. Don't confuse the two. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I mean, I'm so inspired by that. I think on the PR side, advertisers and media buyers have, have stopped buying on Tucker Carlson or whatever, right? They've made that decision and that's a, a noble decision. 100 out of the top 100 PR agencies still have media lists with, you know, Fox News programs on there, right? They're just in the media list and when you're doing the pitching and the, and that feeds the beast. And I, it's a small thing, but I, I do think that, you know, PR agencies have to figure out how do we scrub our media lists, right? Not all the outlets are the same, obviously, and we know that. If we're not literate and news literate, then how can we expect others to be? And I think that we need to be more progressive and strong around, like if a client comes in and says, well, we wanna be on, you know, this Fox News. Well, no, I, we personally, we. I don't think we should be doing that. And, you know, not until they can get on the right side of, of facts and truth. So, um, and maybe there are others, maybe there are others in the far left. I don't think there's an equivalency right now to what's happening on Fox News. So um, I'd be interested to see if PR can start to have a stance that's stronger. Um, if media buyers are stopping to, to buy ads, then maybe we can stop pitching them. Um, just as an industry, it'd be great. <laughs> I'm ready for it, so. Yeah, and I mean, um, just as, as as you both were talking, I came up with like th three more questions, but but I know, but, but but I know I know we have to wrap up. So I actually want to turn it over to you, Becky, and, and ask you if there is there anything that I haven't asked about or that Andy hasn't brought up that that you think is important for the industry to think about or to reflect on. Um, and and if, if you don't have something, then I then I will then I will come up with a last question. Well, I would say one thing. I I think. Um, Gone are the days when organizations can stand on the sidelines and whether that means the leadership of those organizations or the companies using their brand equity or their brand real estate um, to declare what they stand for. Um, you can't evade it anymore. You know, it's it's the stakes are too high and people are literally dying. Mm -hmm. So it's time for people to have really, really tough conversations internally so they can get their voices straight and get the voices lined up to the values that will um, progress society in a manner that everyone benefits from. And I think communicators are uniquely talented at navigating and facilitating those conversations. So if you're a communicator watching this, reach out for help in how to navigate those conversations because your organizations are probably depending on you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one thing that, that I feel like organizations get stuck on here is, is their values and then, but then getting, 
they don't want to get intertangled into being partisan, right? Uh, a lot of organizations, and, and Andy, you and I have talked about this, right? It's like, where is that line between respecting humanity, decency, um, and, and then, and then where, where does it start to feel partisan? Um, do you have any advice on how organizations can kind of walk that line um, between, you know, having their values, knowing what they stand for, and then, you know, also protect themselves from being accused of being, you know, partisan around politics? It's so interesting that you asked that already. I don't know if my thoughts are fully formulated on this, but a couple of years ago, I facilitated a panel early in the Trump administration of brands that had sort of been hijacked by Trump. And what was interesting is the pattern was the same, like Trump tweeting about one and, you know, and then they had to deal with the fallout and they were like tripping over themselves, not wanting to be critical of him, um, but sort of not also feeling prepared to stand up for their organization. Um, flash forward to what we saw emerge in the last 24 hours with the pharmaceutical industry who, you know, reached across commercial lines and they just said, hey, we need to take the responsibility at our doorstep of humanity and make sure that we don't do, we don't pursue any shortcuts. We don't let ourselves be hijacked by an administration trying to win an election. Let's band together arm in arm in an unusual circumstance and make sure that we hold fast to our values. I'm not sure that would have happened before. And I have to believe there were some converse, you know, some calls being quietly made in the background probably with some communicators and PR professionals, they're, you know, testing the waters, be brave, do more of that, because the end goal and the responsibility are so clear, the path to get there may be unfamiliar, but it is so worth it. Be, be brave. I, that's, what, that, that's, that's something to, for the industry to reflect on. Um, well, Becky, thank you so much. I mean, this was such an amazing conversation and so timely. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Andy. Thank you for making the call and reconnecting. Artie, yeah. I'm so glad to know you and I can't wait to watch the rest of the series. Great, well, and, 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 and to our audience, our listeners, um, we will be back in a few weeks with another episode of Intersection. And until then, um, enjoy this one and we will link down to, to the conversation with Craig as well.